0: Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and this week I'm bringing you a return guest who not only has a fantastic new book out, but it is hella relevant to like all of our lives right now. She's going to talk to us about sex and depression and mental health. And her new book is called The Monster Under the Bed. Please welcome back Ellen Naughty.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm so glad to have you back. I was wanting to have you back anyway, but then I was like, we need to have Joellen now because everybody is suffering. Way to write a really timely book is what I'm saying.
1: Yes, and for years I thought I was going to like hit the book too late and then... The timing could not have been more perfect.
0: (laughs) It is sadly perfect timing. But before we get into it, obviously, I need to ask you to go through the lightning round. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. All right. What's been making you happy this week?
1: My dog. Because I'm not stuck home alone, I've got him with me. Oh, sweetie. What's your dog's name? His name is Grover, and he's adorable and looks like a muppet. Is he there right now? He is, right, bud? Hi. Hi, Grover.
0: What is some of the best sex advice you ever received?
1: It's so simple, but lube, like that lube is okay to use lube, lube is good, because that was not something I knew before. And I've been on antidepressants my entire adult life. And so I thought like, oh, well, if I need that, something's wrong with me. Yeah. But no, it, it's legit. And now I have like seven different kinds on my nightstand, because lube is great. Do it's life changing.
0: A recommendation you want to plug?
1: So many, but there's a company called The Butters, Oh, I don't know that one. an oil-based lube. And it's thick and it's moisturizing and it's amazing. And I think more people should, should know about them.
0: Never use oil-based lube with latex. But if you're not using latex, if you're using it for yourself with a sex toy, or if you're using it with a partner that you're fluid bonded with, then go for it.
1: And it tends to be great with hand stuff. So if you're using like nitrile gloves and you're not worried about the oil breaking it down, it's amazing for stuff that involves using hands.
0: Yes. Excellent. Excellent what's been making you maddest or saddest about the sexual culture lately?
1: The, like, competitive I'm having so much sex now that I'm home and we're doing all the things. Are you doing all the things? Sex, sex, sex. That's always my least favorite approach to sex, and I feel like there's some quarantine inspired version of that going on right now.
0: We're gonna talk about that. It's like the sex version of, like, I'm learning a foreign language. I've started making sourdough bread, (laughs) right? Like... (laughs) (laughs) I've never been in better physical shape because I'm exercising so much. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into that. Okay, what is a sex myth that you used to believe but don't believe anymore?
1: I used to really believe in the like, you could be a slut and that would be a bad thing and you should only have sex under certain circumstances. And like, I didn't have sex until I was 22 because I didn't figure out that I am not a relationship girl. I am like a, you know, casual type of girl and i didn't think that was okay so i spent years waiting to be in that like john hughesian high school college relationship and it never happened And then one day i was like well this is dumb and just had sex and everything changed the
0: clouds parted excellent uh and last one who's somebody who's doing brave work to unscrew the sexual culture that you want to give a shout out to
1: jimanika eborn Jiminica works with people who've gone through trauma. That with like reclaiming their sexuality and how they relate to themselves. And Jiminica is doing a retreat called Tending the Garden that is specifically aimed at folks who have been through trauma. I just love everything they're doing.
0: Amazing. Let's talk about your book. Let's start with the sort of the obvious table setting question. Why this book, Why Now, Why You? Give us the elevator speech
1: in the beginning, it was important because so many people were coming to me, I was getting a lot of like private messages and emails and people who were having experiences with antidepressants killing their sex life or, you know, doctors not listening to them, whatever, and they didn't feel seen or heard. So when I started the book in 2014, that was, that was the reason why then. Then I did a whole bunch of interviews and more and more people talked about what did work in their relationships, what made them feel supported? what you know kept everybody on the same page. And I found some of that stuff in my relationship. And so then it became to like destroy some of the stigma around the idea that depression by its nature kills your sex life and thus relationships and there's nothing you can do about it. And now here we are now where I'm thrilled. The, the book literally came out on March 27th. So smack in the middle of COVID-19, everything. And I think that there's a lot of stuff I talk about in there that I think will be great for people who are, you know, maybe not having the best times at home with their partner or maybe are having a fine time but need want to understand things a bit better. I think everybody's so anxious and stressed out and we don't talk about what that can do to your desire to have sex. And I think, you know, my book could help you understand about what's going on and how to navigate it together.
0: Amazing. And so... I'll start with my own personal confession as sort of like a way of modeling. Like when I got home from book tour for Believe Me on March 7th and then I did a book fair locally on March 8th. And then by March 10th, my partner and I had decided we were not leaving the house unless it was essential. Like it was just so fast and I, you know I'd been building up and building up and on the road and it like it was just like it was like slamming into a wall. The first couple of weeks, I had paralyzing anxiety. And I can only imagine that lots of other people are having lots of other mental health reactions, not identical to mine, but like in in parallel to mine.
1: Absolutely. And I think we talk a lot about like when people are feeling this way, we talk a lot about fight or flight, that thing that comes up in your body where you either, you know, want to fight or flee. But what we don't talk about is the third piece of that, which is freeze, freeze.
0: Oh, yeah, that's literally what I did. I was locked up for like weeks. I was just I was frozen.
1: Yeah. And I think we don't talk about that enough. And so people don't know to expect it. I was frozen for like a year and a half. Honestly, this whole thing. I kept joking that like I was ready for quarantining because I'd been in a depressive episode for a while. So I was like, "Eh, I'm on my couch all day anyway. It's fine. I felt frozen. And somebody had to explain to me like, yeah, there's a third component there. It's not just that you fight or you run away. Sometimes you just stop. Well, also because there's nothing to
0: fight and there's nowhere to run like those. Neither of those options are particularly open to folks who are not essential workers right now.
1: And if you've read the book Burnout by Emily and Amelia Nagoski, Yes. And I adore them. Yep. It turned the corner for me on understanding some of this stuff. And they do a lot of talking about like animal responses to stress and anxiety. And, and I was like, oh, yes, I am like an animal who's playing dead until everything goes away and stops scaring me.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly like that. And so even now, like, I feel like the fog lifted like maybe a week ago. Not, not that I'm not struggling with anxiety, but I'm f- more functional <laughs> than I was uh, on a day-to-day basis. I wouldn't say that I'm frozen. I would say that I feel more like I'm moving through molasses some of the time. But one of the things that I'm experiencing with my partner is we're both just on a short fuse, too, which makes it harder to connect sexually because, you know, because it's intimate, right? It's it's about being vulnerable on a certain level. And, like, if the smallest thing goes wrong, quote-unquote, you know, in in a sexual interaction, like one of us may go off right?
1: Like, and
0: that's happening in non-sexual contexts as well it's like not isolated to sex but it's definitely one of the things that's showing up in my sex life it feels risky to try and be that vulnerable right now because i already feel so excruciatingly wrong
1: my partner and i live about an hour apart from each other he lives out on the oregon coast and i am here and before we got our like shelter in place don't go anywhere order in oregon he was really sick with something that looked like COVID-19. Oh my and God, so, he so scary. he was ordered to quarantine for two weeks. And his date when it was okay for him to not quarantine because he hadn't shown symptoms in a bit, whatever, was the day after we were told to shelter in place. And so we are not together right now. And he keeps lamenting this and I miss him desperately. But honestly, knowing how I react to stress and how irritable and on edge I get I think it would have been a mess if we were together I think I would have been snapping at him constantly and thus hating myself and grumpy and angry and then of course there's no sex
0: well especially if you're not used to living together right like right even more so if it's a brand new thing I mean at least my partner and I have basic household rituals down I will also say, and this is not to rub in in anybody's face who does not have this, but I've never been happier for the non-traditional decision we've made to have separate bedrooms than at this moment. The fact that we just each have a private space where we can close the door and it is our space is probably saving our
1: relationship. We always say that if we were to ever live together, we would need a large space so we could have separate rooms and places we could go because... We both get kind of done with people frequently.
0: And I know that not everybody can have that. And right now people are listening and like, fuck
1: you. <laughs> no, I know when I lived, I was married and I lived in a condo that when I think back on it, I'm like, oh, my God, how did we do that? There was like nowhere to go to be away from anybody. It was all just one walk through space and it ooh, it was awful. And that does not breed a desire to be sexual. <laughs> No. (laughs)
0: And a lot of people are also walled in with their kids right now, you know, talk about lack of privacy. So
1: given all of this, you know, what's what's your best advice for all of us? One of my biggest pieces of advice for people generally coping with depression, but honestly, this fits so many circumstances, is make conscious sexual decisions. There's a lot of bad sex advice out there that's like, just do it because you'll realize you wanted to and then you'll have fun. But I always say, if you just do it, like force yourself to get in there and try, you might realize that you didn't want to. And now you like your partner and sex way less. And so I always say, check in with yourself, see how you're feeling about even just the idea of sex today. I know sometimes when I'm depressed, it's like, oh, sex sounds good, but having to move or do anything sounds awful. And then you can... Kind of tell your partner, you guys can talk about how you're each feeling. So it's not sex so easily becomes a hot button issue for us if we're not having it or if one person wants it and the other doesn't. But if we keep that communication open and we know that everybody's still, you know, got sex there on the agenda, we're just not sure where it lands today. Everybody can feel a bit safer and we can avoid that resentment that builds.
0: So you're saying that we have to communicate with each other.
1: You do. You really have to talk to each other.
0: What does that conversation sound like when you do it? I know everyone communicates differently, but I'd love to have an example of how that conversation sounds.
1: So uh, my partner is tremendous. And when he got clear on the whole depression thing, he learned a whole bunch of new tools to work with me. And so we adopted something called Spoon Theory. It was created by a woman named Christine Messandrino, who uh, has lupus. And she made it up as a way to kind of, quantify the amount of energy, emotional resources, whatever you have to get through a day. And so we do a lot of like, do you have the spoons to deal with this right now? And I know with my partner, I can say like, I love you. I desire you. I do not have the spoons for sex right now. And he'll be like, cool, let's put on Great British Bake Off. And before that, it was more just like, I don't want to. And then he felt rejected and awful
0: And do you go out of your way to proactively say that to him, even if he's not making a pass at you, or do you mostly say that responsively?
1: No, I will say it, because like I said, I do that thing where you check in, how you feeling about sex, and I'll say to him, like, yeah, I was thinking about it earlier, but now I just don't think it's going to be a thing today, and it's become a normal conversation for us.
0: Was it weird and awkward when you started?
1: It absolutely was. We had a whole period where my partner was constantly convinced the sexual component of our relationship was going to die if we didn't like get down on it right now. And I still remember that one night we had gone to bed and I I had a bad injury. I had spinal surgery a couple of years ago and I turned to him and I said, I still love you. I still find you very attractive. The sexual component of our relationship is not dying but I'm in a lot of pain right now and need to go to sleep. And it was like a switch flipped or something. Cause we had had adjacent conversations, but I could always tell he didn't quite feel comfortable. And then we had that conversation and it like just caught for us. And then, you know, a couple of years later when he hurt his knee and I would come to visit him, he'd be like, I know you came all this way and, you know, and I still love you and want you, but I am in pain and can't, or you know, I'm stressed about work and don't want to. And it, helps us keep sex as part of our relationship, even on days when it is not actively a part of our relationship.
0: I love this. Our recent guest, Tina Horn, we talked about sexting and sort of long distance sexual communication for folks whose sexual partners are not quarantined together. And she gave a lot of tips about how to do that. But I'm wondering if there's a space for like, doing that kind of stuff, even with a partner where you're in the same house together, where you don't have the spoons to be physically sexual with someone but it's a way of keeping that sexual spark happening like it may take a different kind of energy to send a dirty note to them for it via email or text or whatever than it does to like actually be physically sexual with them
1: do you do that yes i call this making the internet your sexual communication wingman because for me it started with tumblr back when tumblr used to be sexy and these days I use a site called Lady Cheeky that came up on Tumblr and now still exists. Holla at L, L Chase. It's Elle Chase's site. It's been a great communication tool for me and my partner because you can just quickly grab like a sexy image and say this. One day I want us to do this. Maybe not today, but or, you know, hey, maybe come do this right now. But it's a great communication shortcut. Especially because for so many people, like, I talk about sex and feelings constantly, and it's not a big deal for me. But for a lot of people, finding the words to say, this would be hot, or we should try this, or, you know, this image makes me think of you, that's, that's hard. But you just send a picture, and then they get the, the gist of what you're going for. It's also a great way to promote new things you want to try. I love it.
0: And also, looking through the images can sort of light the spark in you. To make you, yeah, you can sort of take it out when you have half a thought about sex and exactly. looking through it can fan the flames, too. What about for people for whom right now there can be no thoughts about sex, like either they're on the front lines and they're coming home exhausted and being terrified all day or they're on the front lines of child care right like with never any relief or just for whatever reason they have no sexual feeling whatsoever at the moment.
1: I always say you get to be where you are when you're there. And a big issue with our world and how it relates to sex is we tend to treat it very like competitively like you're better if you're having more and, and you're not healthy if you're having less or whatever. And there's even the that is, meme
0: going on around right now. And I think I shared it. Masturbation is good for your immune system, right? <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Hell, I'm a sex writer. And there's days where I see stuff that's being shared around the community. And I'm like, really, really? No, I haven't washed my hair in a week. And I just know I don't even want to think about this. I always say, like, that's cool. I caution people against letting it become their persona. In my 20s, I had this thing where it was like, I have depression, so I don't have sex, and that is who I am. And now I realize I needed that conscious decision-making thing I was just talking about so I could understand better to just do it or just not do it. But I do think we all go through times. It ebbs and flows, and what our sex life looks like changes. And I think we need to demystify that for folks. So that when it happens, they can name it and they can know what's happening and not be freaked out by it.
0: But how to communicate with a partner who's maybe not hearing you? Because I also think, like, because people are different and having, I imagine, like, really disparate responses to the stress of this moment. And some people probably want to fuck all the fucking time right now because mm -hmm. it's like an end of the world party, right? Mm -hmm. Like, for some people, they may be completely not there. And those people may be cooped up together. (laughs)
1: Right. (laughs) It's true. And, you know, I know that for some people and for me at certain points in life, it's been like, I'm stressed out. Let's have sex. That'll that'll help. And if you're in the house with somebody who feels that way and you're somebody who's like, I can't even think about sex right now, it can cause some issues. I don't know that I have like definitively good advice on what to do about that. I have things I would try. What would you try? Because I'm a sex educator, so every answer has masturbation or lube in it. Absolutely. But I would encourage my partner to engage in masturbation, and I would encourage them and, and let them know, again, I still want you. I still desire you. This is not about you. I just can't do this right now, but I want you to have the satisfaction you need. So go do whatever you want. Tell me about the cool porn you watched kind of keeping a hand in their masturbation, if that makes that Uh feel better, but not physically.
0: (laughs) Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? It occurs to me that a lot of the advice that we're talking about about how to navigate the way mental health challenges might impact our sex lives is really about demystifying sex and sexuality in general. All of this stuff we're talking about is great advice and great practice and great habits of mind and habits of communication for when we're not in crisis as well.
1: Yes, I always say that sex and depression are the intersection of two taboo topics, and it's our inability to talk about either of them that makes putting them together like a big bad monster. We live in a world where sex is stigmatized and mental health is brought up basically when we want to malign our crazy exes or explain why we think the latest mass shooting happened without threatening anybody's gun rights sorry, do I, do, was my feelings on that clear? Um, oh, oh,
0: please yeah. <laughs> go right ahead.
1: Yes. And so it feels like speaking up about the impact depression, any kind of mental illness is having on your sexual function is basically like announcing that I'm an insane sex crazed whore. And you know, waiting for the world to judge you. But when we kind of take the pieces out, And look at them individually and find ways we're comfortable talking about all the different things and how they relate to our lives. If sex is important to us and why and all of those things, it gets kind of like picking away at paint on a wall. It gets like a little easier the more you do it until eventually your wall is all clear. I'm
0: actually thinking about my manicure that has slowly peeled off. So how has that – tell us a little bit about your journey to pick off your own paint flakes.
1: I feel like there are four different things I point to. And I'm like, that's the moment when this became a conversation for me. But I'll give them to you quick and dirty. When I was uh, freshly divorced, I was on a date with a gentleman who was on antidepressants. We ended up in bed and he was freaked out. And he said, you know, I have to warn you, I'm on these pills. And sometimes I can't have an orgasm and that's not about you. And we ended up having a whole conversation about like how much better life would be if we openly talked about that. So when a month later, a new antidepressant took away my ability to orgasm, I went right to my doctor and was like, nope, this, this isn't working for me. And he was like, nobody ever tells us that. Thank you so much for telling me, because now I know that's a thing that can happen with that medication.
0: Wait, I know that antidepressants ruin sex drive. The doctor didn't know?
1: He didn't know with that specific one. When I had asked him, when he put me on it, I said, I would prefer not to have these side effects. Do they happen? He pulled out a little book and he looked it up and he said, okay, according to this, they're not going to happen. And what he explained to me was that books like the one he pulled out generally get their information from what doctors report their patients are experiencing. So if your patient isn't comfortable telling you about sexual side effects, and so they don't, you don't have that information to report back. The information doesn't end up in the book. And so the next person gets told, no, that won't do that. And, you know, for them, it might not. We're all different. But knowing that it's a possibility sets us up to be so much more prepared for it. So then all of that made me look back at the marriage I had just gotten out of and made me realize that I'd been in a sexless marriage because I kept saying it's not this relationship that makes me not want to have sex. It's, it's the depression and you know, then it's the antidepressants. And then when I was you know, a bit more functional, a bit healthier, I looked around and realized I have desire. I have interest in sex. I just don't have it for this person. And that made me realize what a big, huge danger it is to just assume depression by its nature will destroy our sex lives. And the last big turn on kind of peeling my paint was getting in the relationship with my current partner and falling into a depressive episode. Saying, okay, well, I can do this differently than I've done it in the past because, well, now I'm a sex writer and I talk about sex constantly and that's all a bit demystified for me. And I want him to know what's going on and I don't want to end up having that feeling of I, – I used to get a lot of, like, anger and resentment towards my husband at the time thinking, I feel like shit and you just want me to, like, put out and blah, resentment anger. And I wanted to avoid all of that stuff. So – when my new partner needed to kind of learn what was going on, we took all of these steps to see how we could get around all of it. I'm not going to say that I, you know, now I have depression and have all the sex all the time. That's not true. But now when depression is impacting my sex life, I can talk to my partner about it. And it hasn't become this like hot button, scary issue for us. It's just a thing we've normalized.
0: Yeah. Well, and also like, The goal isn't to maximize the number of times you have sex, or it shouldn't be anyway. Like, I always think we focus too much on quantity of sex and not enough on quality of sex.
1: Well, even quantity of sex and quantity of orgasms, I find get like really like it's like competitive and whatever. And so I keep taking these steps to tell people my book is not here to make sure you're having all of the sex and that it's all super orgasmic. It's here to help you navigate the whole process.
0: Right. And and feel like you can be, I don't know, you can figure out what the best outcome is for you, I guess.
1: Exactly. And there's not that really, for me, it's giving people hope, because for so long, so many people have been told, if you have depression, and especially if you take antidepressants, that will kill your sex life, and that in turn will destroy your relationship. And you don't have a say in it. That's just what happens. And I don't think it has to be what happens. And I just want to share that hope with others.
0: I mean, we could use all the hope we can get right now. (laughs) Yes, it's true. (laughs) Well, and that it's such a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like depression hasn't been my particular challenge, but I know that I, for example, really grew up with a belief that I could have a successful career or I could have a loving relationship, but I could not have both. And I had a number of experiences early in my career life with relationships where that seemed to be proven true. So that only made the sort of belief deeper. And so when I got into this current relationship, like just months before I was going on tour for What You Really, Really Want, my second book, I was like, this is dumb. Like, you're going to leave me. Like, I'm going to be gone. And even before I'm gone, I'm going to be way distracted getting ready for this. And like, you and he kept being like, no, no, I understand that. I want you to do your work. It's fine. And I kept being like, okay, you tell me about that when you're leaving me while I'm on tour. (laughs) right?" Like, (laughs) And it took a really long time in our relationship for me to let go of the idea that when I have to go hard on my work stuff because now, you know, because crunch time happens, right? That it doesn't have to harm the relationship. I mean, I think there's always a certain amount of repair to when you've been gone or other focused for a long time that has to be made when you come back. But but that our relationship was resilient enough that it had room for that repair. I wonder if depression is like that belief that I can't have a relationship because depression's going to fuck up my sex life must have a similar dynamic that when you feel that, like, oh, I not I don't want to respond to this person's sexual advances right now. Everything is fucked, right? Like, I'm functionally unlovable, right? Like, that, that doesn't exactly make you
1: feel more sexual. No. And I think for people who aren't partnered, it feels like a huge stumbling block. I will never get to that. Because depression. I think for a lot of folks in relationships, they end up with this dynamic that I have named the broken and lucky dynamic, where they feel they are broken, there is something wrong with them. And they are so lucky that this person loves them in spite of that.
0: That is a recipe for abuse.
1: It's a mess. And again, it brings up all that resentment because, you know, luck can – you can press your luck. You can run out of luck. Like, luck is not solid or stable. And so, of course, you're going to feel like, I don't like you because I feel like I could lose you at any moment and thus I can't, you know, function as me. Also, it fucks up consent dynamics. Yeah, a lot. A lot, a lot. If you feel like you're so lucky that this person is here and they are the functional one and they are good and you are bad and broken – You can't give like embodied consensual yeses or nos.
0: So what would you say to someone who feels like they're super resonating with that stuff you just said and they're in that dynamic? Like, how do you is there a way to find your way out of that dynamic and stay in the relationship?
1: So I I will be really honest and tell you that I do not know because i ended my the last relationship that was you know depre- contained my depression and then the next one i was in we worked so hard to avoid that i do think what it takes is it takes a willingness on the part of both partners to learn more and it takes the partner who doesn't have depression being really really honest about whether they can be in a relationship with somebody who is coping with depression because not everybody can do it and that's not a judgment of people who can't, but we need to acknowledge that and they need to be honest with themselves about how they view their partner because if they've come to view their partner as you know, this hot mess that they've been saddled with, but that is a dynamic they're super comfortable with.
0: They're like generously tolerating, yeah, if they've bought into the dynamic a- as well.
1: Yeah, because honestly, I've, I've said a couple of times that I feel like a big reason my marriage ended was I got more functional and healthier and our relationship was built on the basis of Joellen is a mess and we started getting really irritable with each other and things were kind of not pleasant in my house. And I remember closing the door behind me to go to work one day and thinking our relationship can't handle me being healthy and I think a lot of people fall into that.
0: Ooh, that's tough stuff. What do you do when you feel resentment starting to crop up? I mean, surely you're human and it doesn't work perfectly.
1: I feel like I'm making my relationship sound like this like utopia of constant (laughs) communication and feelings. Yeah, come on, let's get real. (laughs) Let's talk about the real stuff. What happens when it doesn't work as well? Sometimes I feel terrible because I feel like my relationship is a lot of me saying to my partner, "Okay, I'm starting to get resentful about this. So I need us to talk about it.
0: Oh my God. That's like 30% of of my relationship.
1: So I am an introvert. I am quiet. I need quiet time. My partner is a fire spinning, juggling extrovert with a loud booming voice that is everywhere who is making sound at all times. And who is so excited about everything that he's constantly trying to finish my sentences and, and... jump to the next point in the conversation. And we have multiple conversations, probably, you know, every month or two about like, dude, you can't talk over me, you can't interrupt me, because I start to really dislike you when you do that. And that's not good for us. And so I think that all of this stuff to a lot of people who aren't doing it and who have never done it, it might sound really big and scary. But once you start having these conversations, they get so much easier. And you end up so much more on the same page.
0: So what I hear you saying is it's not about being perfect. It's about noticing when these dynamics start to get unhealthy and addressing it and just being willing to do that on a repeating basis.
1: My partner really loves plants, tons of plants all over his house. And a lot of his life is this plant gets buggy. So what should we do about that? And this plant needs to be around this certain amount of light. And one day I realized he doesn't love any of those plants any less for all of those things that they each specifically need. He just loves plants. And I feel like our relationship is similar. He doesn't love me less because sometimes I need him to like shush. And he doesn't love me less because there are times where I just can't with everything. He just loves me and figures out how to navigate those things as part of that love.
0: Oh, that is so lovely. I want everyone to have that. Just like one one more question and then we'll we'll bring it on home. But what about when your partner also has depression or has their own mental health challenges when it's not like the partner with the challenge and the partner who's understanding about the challenge when your challenges are both flaring up.
1: In my research for this book. So if, for this book I uh surveyed 1100 people and then interviewed about 200. And something that I found was that the relationships where the people were having more success navigating it tended to be ones where both partners had a mental health struggle or alternately the partner who wasn't struggling with depression had like a close relative or somebody in their life they'd been through what mental illness looked like before. And I think it's because you have more of a vocabulary and you have things you understand together. Where this can get tripped up is that everybody needs to feel cared for. And if you're both coping with depression, there's a good chance you're not going to be able to give each other everything everybody needs. Because I, I love to apply theories to everything. There's a thing called ring theory. I love ring theory. I recommend to people all the time. And I think it's important for partners who are coping with depression, like both of them, to understand and this might be important for everybody to understand you and your partner each have your own set of rings and you might be on each other's rings. Right. So uh, just to explain to people ring theory is this idea that puts somebody who is dealing with a trauma or, you know, an illness or whatever at the center of a bunch of concentric rings and, you know, the people closest to them are on the next ring out. And then as the relationships get more distant, we get further out on the rings and the rule of ring theory is comfort goes in, and you dump stuff out. So you're never dumping emotional baggage on somebody who's in a worse position than you, who's closer to the trauma than you. You're sending comfort towards them. And then you're turning to the people on the outer rings for support. And I talk about it in the book a lot in terms of the person with depression having these rings, but we all need to have our rings in place. So we know where we can get the support. And it's not all relying on one person, our partner, to give it to us.
0: So part of the answer
1: is building community. Yeah, you have to have other people in your life. And we're not, as a society, we build so much towards the, like, couple ideal of, like, couples do everything together. And couples are everything to each other. And all of that, that it's a lot of pressure to put on a relationship, And you need to know that there are other people you can turn to in other places. You can get the support if it's not happening in the relationship right now.
0: All right. That's a good place to end. Is there anything else that you wanted me to ask you about that we didn't
1: talk about? One of my favorite things to talk about that I haven't gotten to is workarounds for sexual side effects on medications, because sometimes people like their medication, but also it has caused sexual side effects. So they want to keep the the benefits, but also, you know, they don't want to give up. So sometimes medications can cause things like erectile dysfunction, anorgasmia, decreased lubrication. So I have a list of things I like to recommend. Of course, lube is high on there. For people of all bodies, I recommend strong wand-style massagers. I like a company called La Wand. Theirs are both beautiful to look at and really strong. And what that does is it lets you stimulate a wider area and more intensely. So you're getting at things that maybe you don't normally think to stimulate and you're trying different things and seeing what you know, your route to orgasm looks like now. And if you've got a penis, you can slap a, a little sleeve attachment on it. And those tend to work even when there's no erection, right? To help you have an orgasm erection free. The last thing I recommend is also for that same thing, Hot octopus. They make a line of, uh, they call them guy It's cute. I don't love the genderedness of it, but you know, their products use uh, oscillation rather than vibration. And they have put a lot of work into getting them in the hands of people with erectile dysfunction or people who have been paralyzed and no longer get erections. And they have found that they are quite successful at bringing about orgasms for folks who Aren't getting erections anymore. Additionally, everybody should read "Come as You Are" by Emily Nagoski. Yes, and a book called "Yes," and a book called "Let Me Count the Ways" by Marty Klein. That one is about exploring sexuality beyond thinking like it's penetration and erections and everything.
0: Some concrete recommendations. Love it. Awesome. So you are doing I'm, the thing we didn't talk about. Of course, is the fact that your the book is coming out in the middle of coronavirus pandemic yes. means also your book tour got postponed your <laughs> it's true physical in-person book tour but you're having some virtual events coming up am i right about that
1: i am on wednesday april 22nd i am doing my class navigating sex and depression online for good for her the store based in toronto if you go to goodforher.com you can find the details for that And I'm also doing that class again later that week for a shop called Sugar. We're doing that on Sunday, the 26th, I believe, but that information is not yet available online. I will have all of this up on my site so people can find it and, you know, come to things from your couch, which is so easy and fun. So
0: easy. You don't have to put on a bra. Where's your website and what are your social medias and all of
1: that? My website is redheadbedhead.com. And on all of the social medias, I am just my full name, JoEllen Navi.
0: That's N-O-T-T-E.
1: And my book is currently available, as they used to say in the commercials, wherever fine books are sold.
0: Excellent. And may I put in a plug, if people are listening, to, if you can, get it from your local indie, whether that's downloading it via ebook, or via Kobo, which is connected to indie bookstores, or if your indie bookstore can deliver it Um, A lot of indie bookstores are really struggling to stay afloat right now, and I would love to see them get some support.
1: I know my book is listed on a site called IndieBound, and they will tell you what independent stores near you have it. Additionally, there's a similar thing for audiobooks called Libro.fm.
0: Oh, we know about Libro.fm on this podcast. We love it. Yes.
1: And you can go there. I know my audiobook is there and these are things that can help your local businesses stay afloat. It's been pretty
0: devastating. So support your Indies if you possibly can or support mm-hmm. somebody else's Indie if you don't have one in your neck of the woods. And you can find me all the usual places. Jacqueline F on Twitter, Jacqueline Fable on Instagram. My website is JacquelineFriedman.com. Unscrewed is also available wherever fine podcasts are available. We're, part of the ACAST network but you can also find us on Apple Podcasts on Spotify wherever you like to listen this podcast is produced by yours truly Jacqueline Friedman and edited by the fantastic Natalia Rodriguez our in and out music is by the pink tiles and our cover art is by Nicole DeDonna and until next week I am wishing you safe and happy sex lives